Village Church, Chris Lash. Hello, everyone. It's a lot of fun to be here. Little did you know, in April, uh, you'd have to bring your snowshoes. So I hope you didn't lock those away somewhere in some storage bin, but that you brought them here because that's probably the only way that you got here. So I am, I am really excited to be here. My name is Chris Lash. I work at Judson University. Um, amen. I work at Judson University um, as their campus pastor. And so I get to teach um, uh, relatively frequently um, in chapel, and that is a lot of fun. I love college students. I love the staff I get to minister to, and I love the faculty members I get to minister to. Um, and, and something that I want you all to know, like if I'm just coming here and showing up for one of these Sundays, a handful of things I want you to know. The, the first thing is, um, I think that what we're doing here is sacred. I think that what we're doing in this space is sacred, not because of the carpet and the wood, although it's very nice, but because um, we are going to be opening the Word of God together, um, and we are going to be praying that He speaks through me, through into you, and that any of the words that were written a couple thousand years ago have relevance to you because the Spirit illuminates and makes these things alive for us. And, and so I am really excited and honored that I get to be a part of what we're doing here. The next thing is um, I love working with college students because one of the things I get to see is the front row of culture. I get to see where culture is going to be in about 10 years. Um, and so sometimes that causes a lot of fear and trepidation among people, but I'm here to tell you that I am very secure and confident in where the future of the church is going because I know the future of the church right now. And so I know that these students that I get to minister to are some of the most generous, compassionate, they're some of the most kind, they care about their neighbor in ways that befuddle me. Um, They are men and women um, who will steward finances well. Um, They will absolutely steward finances well. They are the most diverse generation in human history, and they are the most educated generation in human history. And so they can handle um, what I believe the Lord is going to throw at them as far as what the church, the future of the church is going to be. And so I am really excited that these next generations will be um, correcting for some of my generation's errors um, and bringing the church into the future in a really helpful, uh, really, really helpful way. And so I'm really excited for where we're going. Um, and I'm excited that we get to learn from them too. The next thing that you need to know about me is that I am engaged to be married. I'm very excited about that. That is lovely. Oh, thanks. First service didn't clap. Wow. Um, I, I'm engaged to be married, and so um, we have a shower this afternoon. She has a shower. I don't know whose shower it is, but someone's got to go, and so I'll figure out afterwards if I'm supposed to go. Um, but we're really excited. We, we get married in a couple weeks. So this is the last time I teach before we get married. So this is like a special occasion for me in that way. Um, the last thing that I want to tell you all is that you, this church, has an incredible um, reputation. You just need to know your reputation outside of this place. Um, I work at a university, so I interface with a lot of local church pastors. I produce about 80 services per calendar, per, per school year. Um, so we bring in a lot of local church pastors. Um, and people talk about churches, so I hear about different churches, and I hear about what's going on, and I connect with pastors in the area. And you need to know that this church has an incredible reputation, and I consider it an honor that I get to come teach here, uh, and that I get to spend time with you all, because word on the street is that you all are... Um, incredibly compassionate, hospitable, and kind, that you are serious about the Word of God, and that you are serious about changing your community for the better. And so I'm really grateful to be here. Okay, 
Enough of that. Let's do Mark 10. How about that? Let's open our Bibles to Mark 10. Mark chapter 10. We are going to be starting a paragraph before the reading that we heard today. We're going to be starting in a passage um, about a guy named Bartimaeus. So I'm going to read a little bit, and then we're going to talk a little, read a little, talk a little. It's going to be a wonderful little dance. I hope that you'll join us. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he, Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So Mark sets us in the scene immediately. Mark um, is notorious. He's the shortest book of the the four Gospels. Uh, He is notorious for just kind of like dropping you into a scene and you have to figure out where you are from that point on. So here's where we are. We are um, in Jericho in this moment and Mark tells us nothing about what happened in Jericho. He goes, Jesus went to Jericho. Jesus left Jericho. What happened in Jericho? Nobody knows. That's fine. That's not his point. His point is that there's a guy in Jericho. His name is Bartimaeus. What does that mean? Bar, son of Timaeus. It's a very creative naming scheme. It's very interesting. I'd be like Bar David or something like that. That's cool. So um, uh, he is about 16 miles. Jesus is about 16 miles outside of Jerusalem at this point in Jericho. And so you see uh, uh, he's headed to Jerusalem for the festivals. A couple chapters ago, Mark has shown us that Jesus is on a mission to go to Jerusalem for Passover for this holy week. Uh, And he's set to arrive. So this story probably takes place on like a Friday or a Saturday or something like that. And so Jesus is leaving Jericho and he is on his way. And he walks past a guy um, begging by the roadside. And this guy has positioned himself so that people notice him. With that in mind, let's keep reading. 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, he said, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So put yourself in the scene here. Uh, A blind guy happens to uh, hear the name of the guy walking by. Um, There's a guy sitting on the side of the road, and he hears people talking, this crowd talking and whispering this name, Jesus. It's this Jesus. And and this guy immediately goes, I've heard the stories of Jesus. I've been by this gate. I have been sitting outside for a really long time, and I may never have seen him, but I've heard about the the tales of what this guy can do. I've heard that he heals people. I've heard that he challenges the religious elite. I've heard that he's a little bit controversial. I've heard that he's a bit of an interesting character. And so I want to get this guy's attention because if there's somebody that can do something about my situation, rumor has it, it's actually this guy right here. I've heard that he might just listen to people like me. And so the word call out that you see in the text, um, that, that word signals that he was crying out. He was shouting. He was trying to be incredibly disruptive. This was not a respectful from the back of the room where you put your hand on your mom's shoulder to get her attention while she's still talking to someone kind of a thing. This is the kid yelling at his mother. Kind of a, My mom's here, so she knows. Um, <laughs> praise God for her. Um, this is a disruptive situation. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Jesus, son of David, listen to me. Hear me. I am here and I need you. Jesus, I need you to intervene in my life now. This will not wait. I cannot pause for you to leave and come back. I'm not waiting for this merry-go-round next time around because who knows what's going to happen in the meantime. And everyone around him hears the disruption and then says what? You need to stop talking, Bartimaeus. We have this nice little town, Jericho, and here you are sullying our reputation. The last thing that we want this Jesus Nazareth to see is this blind beggar being disruptive, shouting while he's trying to what? Walk, teach, eat? Who knows? We do not want you here. But Bartimaeus is undeterred. He will not be silenced by the crowd. He will not be uh, uh, put out by what they are saying. He says, Jesus, I know who you are. Jesus, I am aware of, I'm aware that you are here. I hear you near me, Jesus. And, and Jesus stops. He actually stops. This blind beggar stopped God. He pauses his travel. He pauses his mission to hear this guy out. And Bartimaeus uses this term, son of David. So if you'll permit me, I'd like to nerd out a little bit. Before Mark wrote his gospel, the prevailing belief about this term, son of David, was that when it was given to somebody, it's seen in extra biblical literature, literature outside the Bible, um, this term, son of David, was used to describe a guy who would be carrying... uh, uh, the kingship, and he would predominantly, he would, he would specifically be a violent and militaristic leader. And this is the resume of the guy who was supposed to be carrying the title son of David. This is what he'd do. He would cast out foreign nations from Israel. He would judge all the nations. He would force them to serve under his rule. He would reign in wisdom and righteousness He would remove foreigners. He would push out the sullied Israelites in order to create a pure nation. He would eliminate the oppressors by death. Uh, And there was a prevailing belief that the son of David would remove the blind from the kingdom since they were a symbol of brokenness and unbelief. And you kind of see some of this language in the, in the gospel story about the, the, the blind man who the religious Pharisees come to him and go like, Jesus, who sinned him or his parents? There was a belief that the blind wouldn't even have a role in this kingdom. So not only is Bartimaeus being a little annoying and inconvenient, but this title is also a little dangerous. I did. (laughs) Wow. That was incredible. (laughs) Woo. (laughs) Wow. Servant over right there. (laughs) Farewell. So not only, not only is Bartimaeus 
Not only is Bartimaeus using a curious title, but it's a little bit of a dangerous title because if you heard the violent um, and militaristic tone of a lot of the descriptors here, um, the Romans, the occupying force, probably wouldn't be too thrilled that there was somebody coming up in the kingship, that there would be somebody coming up who had the possibility to overthrow any kind of a governor or could lead any kind of an insurrection because that kind of thing has happened before and Rome does their level best to stamp it out as violent violently and unmercifully as possible. And so this term is also a little dangerous. So I imagine people are silencing Bartimaeus because not only is he annoying, but they could get everybody killed. So it's interesting that Bartimaeus uses this term to get his attention. And Jesus actually stops. And Bartimaeus looks at Jesus and he goes, well, not true. Okay. I'm not going to go to that, whatever. Bartimaeus speaks up and he says, Jesus, I know who you are. And I know that according to this title, you don't think I belong in this kingdom. But in order to be in this kingdom, I need you to change me. I need healing. I need this king to change me. I need the rumors to be true. So far from being invisible... Mark gives Bartimaeus the dignity of being one of the rare people over the course of this gospel who correctly named Jesus. And he is one of the only two people, if I'm remembering correctly, who actually received the name in the gospel, written down in the gospel. So this anonymous person that nobody knows at all, his name is preserved forever in this gospel. And Jesus stops for him. He turns to Bartimaeus and calls him to meet him. And everyone in the crowd holds their breath. What is this Jesus going to do? Jesus stops for you. Jesus is on a mission here. Um, He's headed to Jerusalem with everyone else around him. Surely the powerful and the influential decided to hitch their wagon to this prophet who will be moving into Jerusalem soon. Um, And Bartimaeus calls out and Jesus stops moving. Listen, Jesus stops for you. No matter when, where, or how you call him, um, can you imagine how many people passed by Bartimaeus each day only to ignore him? They might have thrown some change. They might have looked at him, had pity on him. But how many people moved by Bartimaeus and never actually knew his name or said, come here to me. And Jesus refuses to miss the person in front of him. So when I first read this text, um, I pictured the scene where Jesus and his crowd were walking by this blind beggar here. And Jesus was about a hundred yards out or, or so, and he would hear this guy all of a sudden calling his name. And so with Bartimaeus behind him, then Jesus like turns around to him, right? So, so I have this picture where Jesus didn't even see him the first time around. And what I think is really interesting is I was like, why do I have that vision of Jesus? I realized that's my own God baggage getting in the way of seeing what Jesus is doing in this text. I assume that Jesus, his mission was something other than healing Bartimaeus. I assume that his mission did not originally include Bartimaeus. I assume that his mission was to intentionally move past this person because if Jesus, no, if we see anything about Jesus, he's intentional, so clearly he made a mistake. 
but it's probably more of a, a problem with me than it is with any kind of clarity that Mark offers in this text or any kind of a character thing that we see of Jesus. The reason I probably believe that Jesus moved past Bartimaeus initially is because I believe that Jesus moves past me and it's only until I call out to him that he turns around and goes like, fine, when you call, I'll come. But what if Jesus didn't ignore Bartimaeus? What if Bartimaeus did get Jesus' attention? What if Jesus actually cared about Bartimaeus before that point? What if he did actually intend to restore and heal Bartimaeus in the beginning? Let's make it plain. Let's just make this point really plain. You aren't too much for Jesus. He hasn't walked by you. He's not ignoring your problems because somebody else's are more. He's not ignoring your problems because of your ministerial effectiveness is just too great to take you off and to put you on the bench for a little bit. Um, He's not ignoring some of the things that you're dealing with because he just doesn't recognize you. He doesn't know you. Your faith isn't big enough. He's not doing that. Whatever baggage you're bringing into this space, whatever background that you have, whatever your hurt, your disappointment, Jesus stops for you and pays attention to your issue. Your problems, your fears are not swallowed up or minimized because Christ is too busy for you. Christ actually stops for you. Let's keep going. Verse 49. And they called the blind man. The crowd called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Like, come on, guys, roll your eyes at that. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So Bartimaeus throws off his only earthly possession to run to Jesus. And Jesus does not ignore Bartimaeus, but engages him directly. Bring him here, Jesus says. And and the crowd suddenly changes their tune. They're like, oh, he wants you. Go to him. This is great. We always knew that you were a special person. So go to him now. And after a small exchange, and I wish we had time to get into about the question that Jesus asks, uh, Jesus heals him, and, and Bartimaeus begins to follow him on the way. That The text makes an interesting juxtaposition where he was in the way earlier, and he's on the way now. He's following Jesus on the way. And so, so here's the point and why I wanted to start our triumphal entry text in Mark chapter 10. It's because the, the dominant belief about what a king would be the, the dominant belief about what it would be for the Messiah King to come was that it would be a warrior king, and Jesus flips that on its head. Instead of throwing out the blind, he stops to heal them, and he begins to restore the kingdom, not through violence and iron rule, but by gracious and loving and patient and intentional restoration. Now, with that in mind, let's continue to Mark 11. So, verse 1, now, after all of these things, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Belphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, they're at a ridge overlooking Jerusalem, 
And he does this thing in the next couple verses where he sends his disciples to go get a donkey, and he gives it very specific instructions, where to find it, how to procure it, all that stuff, and bring it back. And Jesus is being really intentional here. It's interesting that in this text, the verbs of the text are all associated with Jesus, not associated with someone else. You see Jesus all of a sudden at the turning point of Mark, Jesus is the driving force in the text. Go get this donkey and come back. We don't have time to go into that more. So fast forward to verse 7. They have a donkey now, and they brought the colt to Jesus, and the disciples threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I really like history. I particularly like military history. So let's go about 200 years before this incident. About 200 years before um, Jesus comes in on his triumphal entry, there's a guy by the name of Judas Maccabee. If you have a Catholic background, you might be familiar. There's a guy named Judas Maccabee. And, and this guy, his nickname, Maccabee, his nickname is The Hammer. So you can kind of tell what kind of a guy this was. Um, and what he did was he gathered his sons and he brought an insurrection against the ruling Syrian empire. So he fought many guerrilla style warfare campaigns and he ended up pushing the Syrians out of Judea, out of this region. And so there's this scene where, where Judas is walking down into Jerusalem and the quote is this. He and his army returned to Jerusalem and they, quote, entered it with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel, end quote. Does that sound familiar? Then the Jews went to the temple after that and they cleansed it and they threw out all of the idol worship that were there and they burned everything, and they purified Jerusalem for proper worship. Okay, now let's rewind the story another thousand or so years to the time of King David. David wins victory against Israel's enemies and brings the ark with God's presence into Jerusalem, and there's much dancing and celebration. He gets in trouble with his wife because of his dancing. Like, nudity is not a thing. Like, okay, I don't have time for that. So, David, David dances like crazy, uh, uh, and there's incredible celebration of the fact that God's presence has returned to Jerusalem. And God makes a famous covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And God says, I will establish an eternal kingdom for your descendants. And one of your descendants will be the ruler of this eternal kingdom. But, but true to pattern, true to their pattern, Israel disobeys God and God casts them out of the land and they fell into the hands of another ruling empire. So God sent a minor prophet named um, Zechariah and he went to speak to the dispersed Israel where there would be a king, he told them there would be a king to return to Jerusalem. But this time this king would come riding on a donkey and he would establish peace in all the land. Does this sound familiar? Jesus is gathering all of this Old Testament 
an extra biblical hope and expectation and lore, and he's bringing it with him as he moves into Jerusalem. His people were desperately yearning for a conquering king to kick out a foreign power who were oppressing the people, who had threatened to tamper down their worship. This king would cleanse the temple, would cleanse the people and be a true king to establish Israel forever. There's all this history and all of this hope and all of this expectation as Jesus rides in on this donkey. There's this prophet who's been doing ministry for a long time. He's finally here in Jerusalem when there's all this hustle and bustle and it's a dangerous time, but it is a time that the people are going to go. We are not going to miss this moment. If this king is going to lead an insurrection against these Romans, the time is now. So the people, are, they're pretty excited. So they run into the fields and they cut branches and they wave it as he rides in. They lay their cloaks down as symbol of deference and they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the prophet who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is this coming kingdom. We know that it's finally here. We know that the kingdom of David is finally coming. Hosanna in the highest. They shout, help, save us, Hosanna. And so here's the question. When they shout these things, did they have any idea who they were welcoming? Did they have any idea the kind of king that they were welcoming? If you read commentators and you, and you listen to various pastors, they're, they're pretty typically split on, on what the crowd is thinking and doing during this time. They're trying to pull context from the way that Mark deals with crowds and the way that he, he's treating some of these kinds of descriptors. And, and they're trying to figure out what did, what did the crowd believe? And they're pretty split Some say that the crowd was, uh, they knew that this guy was the Messiah and they recognized him for who he was, that maybe some of them were there because he was a prophet, but that they knew. And so this shouts of Hosanna was was a legitimate shout of save us, Jesus, this Lord Jesus, come and save us. And some say that, that these, the crowd was, was only yearning for military uh, uh, vindication, that they were yearning for a military ruler to come in. So they were shouting, save us from these Roman oppressors. And, And some were saying that he, he, he came in for healing, save us in that way. And I don't think Mark is very, I think he intentionally leaves it vague for us. I I don't think he's trying to be very specific. I think you have this weird hodgepodge all of a sudden in this crowd. I think you have people there for a mix of motivations. Because either way, whether they recognized him or not for who he was, whether there were some like Bartimaeus, in that crowd or not, they did not recognize Jesus as anything like a Messiah king. A Messiah king who would need to suffer and die for his people. You see that because anytime someone talks about this, when Jesus starts talking about this after chapter 9 of, 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 of Mark, um, everybody tries to silence him. It's like, stop that. Stop talking about how you're going to die. You're going to live forever. This is your eternal kingdom. They did not have a category for this suffering and dying Messiah king. What they wanted was a warrior king. And you see that uh, in an interesting way in verse 11. So if you look to verse 11, it says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
So this is what's strange about this text right here. This is what's really strange and curious about it. You have this incredible entry filled with symbolism, filled with hope, filled with expectation, filled with waving of palm branches and dirty cloaks and donkeys and all those good things. But then there's this really anticlimactic ending where Jesus has this celebration on the way in and you'd think it would continue into the temple, but it stops short of the temple. He shows up at the temple. There's no celebration. There's no palm branches. There's no cloaks. There's no nothing like that. It's quiet and the text just says, and it was late, so he went home. So Mark is leaving it vague for us. He's not telling us specifically what the crowds thought. The point is, whether they knew it or not, Jesus knew what he was doing. His disciples were still catching up. They have been this entire book. Jesus was heading to his death, and they all ultimately objected to some kind of a ruler that did not throw out Rome, some kind of a ruler that was a non-militaristic presence. So in this text that we just read, if I'm being honest, the guy I want to be is Bartimaeus. The guy I want to be in this text is the desperate person calling out to Jesus to save me. I want to be the one who has the faith to receive the healing from the Lord, to receive the blessing from the Lord. But if I'm really honest, I'm the crowd I'm the group of people who are confused at who Jesus is and who, he, who I want him to be. I'm the group of people who welcome Jesus under false pretenses. I'm more like the crowd who put all of my hope and expectation on this guy, only to later be disappointed because he never measured up to what I'm told him he's supposed to do. I, I think I'm the crowd here more than I am Bartimaeus. So pretty soon in the service, we're going to be waving palm branches, and a lot of you have them in front of you. And it's a celebration, surely. It's a celebration. But I think they have a double meaning as well. I think on the one hand, they're a celebration, that there's something new breaking in. There's this new kingdom that's coming, whether they realize it or not. There's this new kingdom here. But also, I think the palm branches represent failed expectations, disappointment, dashed hopes because I'll wave my palm branches for Jesus, for this Jesus that I, when, when I tell him he needs to throw out all my oppressors, I'll wave my palm branches when he comes riding in, he's going to rescue me from some kind of addiction or slavery to something. I'll wave my palm branches for Jesus when, when I don't feel like forgiving somebody and I find a verse that tells me I might not have to. I'll wave a palm branches for this Jesus if if he promises to relieve my suffering, if he promises to bring vengeance against people who have wronged me. I'll wave my palm branches for a strong, victorious king. I will welcome that king with everything that I've got. If he promises a quick fix to my problems, I will wave my palm branches for that king to finally come. But if it's a different king, I I, I think I'll wait for the next go-round. The suffering king, Jesus... The one, the one who makes grace known in my weakness. The one who calls me to forgive. The one who calls me to lay my life down for my oppressors. The one who defies my expectations. The one who refuses to be held hostage by my expectations. 
I don't feel like following that king into the temple. I think I'll keep my celebration out here. And so, so for me, these palm branches represent hope and expectation and longing and claiming the promises of God. On the other hand, they represent dashed hopes, misunderstanding the promises of God, misunderstanding how God speaks. Because if we're honest this morning, I, I think we in this room are the crowds. I think we are the crowds. We are the ones who expect Jesus to come one way and then leave in disappointment when he doesn't heal our illness, when he doesn't automatically restore our family or marriage that we've asked, when he doesn't give us a spouse when we wanted, who doesn't give us clear direction, when we've been job hunting for a while and, and we've been sending out resumes like crazy and we have not gotten any responses back. Or, or when our, our, our kid is rebellious, we don't really know what to do with them. We expect that if maybe Jesus just this one miracle. We're the crowd who wants to define the type of Jesus this God is. So Mark turns this text around and asks us, who is this Jesus to you? And I believe that's the question the Spirit's asking us this morning. Um, Who are you waving palm branches for? What are the ways that you predetermine how this Jesus is supposed to act? How he fulfills his promises? How he gives direction for your life? How do you wave palm branches, but how do you miss the point? How do I miss the point? How do you let disappointment prevent you from following this Jesus into the temple with celebration? There's an invitation here, I think. There's an invitation to turn from the ways that we try to make Jesus into who we want him to be, into who we think he needs to be, into what it means to be a respectable God. We can turn from that. We can turn towards in kindness, in the kindness that God offers us in repentance. We can turn towards the Jesus who suffers, dies, and resurrects for new life. This is an invitation to life, to joy, to flourishing. But what do we do with our disappointment? What do we do with those thoughts, those feelings, those emptiness? What what do we do with that? I think we see three things from this text. The first thing um, I want you to see, I want us to see, I want us to be reminded that Jesus stops for us. That Jesus stops for us. Like Bartimaeus, Jesus stops for us when we call him. He calls to us. He dialogues with us. And even though he knows everything about us, he waits for our response for no other reason than because he loves us and is present in that moment with us. Jesus is not in a hurry. He's not scrambling to get to someone else who's in more need. The beauty that the Spirit makes Jesus known to all of us, that he can minister to us all. Jesus is present to you. He's present to you in community. He's present to you in the church. He's present to you in his word. He's present to you in prayer. Jesus stops for you. The second thing is Jesus listens to us. Jesus actually hears our cries. He stops and he listens. And, and this is incredible because it, it's, the, it's the opportunity for us to confess our disappointment, to be incredibly specific and ruthless about naming those things that's in our hearts, how we believed he's failed us. He asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? He listens patiently. He doesn't chastise us or hasten us or hurry us along. He listens 
This is where we name our church hurt. This is where we name our personal hurt, the darkness in our hearts that we don't want to speak to anyone else. This is where we name that. This is where we name our vindictive attitudes towards others or the ways that we have left a wake of devastation behind us. Listen, give Jesus your disappointment. Give him your hurts. Give him your failed expectations. Give him your wants and desires. Give him the secret things that you haven't mentioned to anyone else. Offer that to him. Listen, unexpressed, unconfessed, unnamed disappointment is detrimental to our faith. It should, never bring jo- it, should, it should never bring shame to name those things, but it's detrimental to our faith because it eats us alive, it leaves us bitter, it leaves us resentful, and it saps us of any faith the Lord might be able to give us. And the final point, third, Jesus restores. Jesus restores. For Bartimaeus, this meant restoring his sight. For the crowds, Jesus' restoration looked like using their homicidal anger, which what it builds to, right, by Good Friday, using their homicidal anger to affect the restoration of all things because their shouts of praise would soon turn to shouts of crucify him, crucify him, to be met, by the way, by Jesus' statement of Father, forgive them. They do not know what they, they do not know what they do. Within four days, this crowd turns on Jesus because they do not understand what a suffering, weak Messiah looks like in the kingdom of God. So here's the interesting thing about all of this. Um, Jesus never actually forgets the crowd. They have a real problem. The Romans are a real problem. They are oppressing the people. They are in God's land. They will eventually reclaim that space. Their, Their desire for military victory isn't silly. They needed deliverance. They needed to be rescued. But Jesus was working to give them something better. He wasn't working to establish a short-term kingdom that would be overthrown. He is in-breaking a brand new kingdom with new rules that heal blind men that should be cast out. So what does this mean for you and your disappointment? What does this mean for you? I think Jesus lovingly invites us and he gives us the trust that we need to hold on to him. He gives us the love, the affection, and the joy. And it, instant, it is not instant. Sometimes it takes weeks, months, years, decades, but God's got the time and God's got the patience. And he's far less concerned about where you're going to end up and far more concerned about showing you his nature and character and letting you get in touch with the Spirit of God in the process. He looks at our disappointment. And he says, give that to me. Can I begin to fill you with delight? Not erase it, not get rid of it, not cover it up with just a coat of paint, but fill you with delight. He is tender and present to us where we are now. So there are two things that we need to heal from disappointment. Community and love. Theologically, we need the community of the Trinity. We need the community of the church. We need the love of God himself poured into us, and we need the love of the church. We need a crew of people who will walk alongside us and speak affectionately to us and remind us of the freedom in the gospel. And we need, we need the delight of Christ. We need, you need to hear consistently. I need to hear consistently every morning anew afresh. You are loved and cherished by God. With you I am well pleased. So we're going to wave our palm branches. 
And they can stay for you a symbol of disappointment. They can stay for you a, a, a symbol of God perhaps letting you down, you feel. But I wonder what it would look like for the branches to be a symbol of surrender. What would it look like for waving these palm branches for you to have a new vision for what God can do in your life? To have a new vision of what it means for you to say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, stop for me. Jesus, listen to me. I believe that you'll restore me. I believe that you'll give me a new vision. I believe that you will heal me. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity to open your word and hear from your spirit and be encouraged by the scriptures. I'm grateful that you made a triumphal entry, that that you sit with us in the midst of our disappointment and you don't wag your finger or shake your head in disappointment at us, but that you welcome us to express it, that you do your ministry in the midst of it, and that even in the midst of our disappointment, you offer us delight, you give us delight. You sing praises over us, and, and so I pray that we would recognize afresh every day that you stop for us, that you listen to us, and that you restore us. We love you. It's in Christ and we pray. Amen.